A wellness crisis affecting many across our industry. Today, we begin an important conversation about the pilot's pandemic. From the National Business Aviation Association, this is Flight Plan. I'm Rob Finfrock with your trusted source for the very latest business aviation news and information. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and that's one reason, but far from the only one, why over the next two weeks we're devoting a pair of extended episodes of Flight Plan to the topic of mental wellness in the business aviation community. Because this isn't just a matter of reaching out and finding help with these issues, although that is the most important part. But that process can also impact your job and, for pilots, your medical certification. So we'll be talking not only about the importance of finding treatment for mental health concerns, but also about the FAA special issuance medical process, how it accommodates some conditions and treatments, but also where more work may be needed. One quick note. While this discussion will focus primarily on pilots and medical certification concerns, this topic is most certainly not limited to the flight deck. The importance of recognizing mental wellness issues and seeking appropriate treatment when necessary applies to everyone working in our industry, and there are insights and lessons here for anyone listening. My guests for this discussion are Matt McNeil, President and Clinical Director of Lift Effect, which offers professional assistance for pilots facing mental wellness concerns. I'm also pleased to welcome Emma Lasko, a pilot and aeromedical reform advocate who in February 2021 launched The Pilot's Pandemic, a weekly podcast that openly discusses mental health issues among the pilot community. Her co-host, who's also with us today, is fellow aeromedical advocate Maddie Miller. But we'll begin our conversation now with Mark Larson, CAM and Director of Safety and Flight Operations at NBAA. Pilots are human and they have rates of mental health issues really akin to and on par with the broader adult population. That's you know, one of the key pieces here that we work on. And so you know, trying to make sure that we've got a policy that makes a lot of sense in that, in that same way. For years, the NBA Safety Committee, we've had fitness for duty among our foundations of safety and uh, you know, pilots really need to you know, work to address physical issues, things like sleep apnea, diabetes, you know, a host of other medical conditions. They all seem to address um, fatigue really being kind of another cornerstone of, of this concept of fitness for duty that we have, as well as mental health. These three areas often inter- interplay with each other for the good and for the bad. Maybe just as a quick example, you know, chronic pain could lead to things like chronic fatigue if the pain keeps one awake at night. And, and all those things really do uh, tend to interplay as well. So looking forward to hearing thoughts from uh, others on the call here, too, and, and how that all works and, and plays out. Emma, as Mark said, these situations can affect pilots differently because we're masters of the skies, right? We're not supposed to let worldly concerns affect us. And it may take us longer than others to admit when we might need help. Oh, yeah. Agreed fully. It doesn't matter who you are. Just simply put, you really don't know what could be around the next corner. And I'm a full believer in always being prepared and knowing that you should be able to go get help if for some reason you need it. Nobody's perfect. And unfortunately, we can't escape the hardships of life. Maddie, I know I've seen and felt in my own life over these last three years how those hardships can seem even more daunting. Oh, yeah, I think COVID really put into perspective how important mental health is. There were a lot of pilots that were feeling isolated, not connected, that whole unknowing of how the industry was going to go. And so a lot of that stress 
of the unknowing was coming out. And I think it was not as manageable as it used to be because when you don't know, you fall back on things like drinking. I think a lot of us can say when the pandemic happened, we all started kind of relying more on substance because we were all so unsure. And so a lot of that came out in the stories that we've heard from pilots that the pandemic really weighed on their mental health. Matt, how have you seen this situation evolve in the aftermath of COVID-19? When COVID happened, there was an increase, like a 350% increase in our clinical practice. I saw more clients in a six-month period than I had seen in the previous six years during COVID. So, But what COVID did is it, it highlighted the problems that were already there. COVID didn't create the problems. It just gave a voice and it blew the top off of these very subversive covert issues. And it just brought it right out into the spotlight. And so in my opinion, I think the cat is out of the bag. COVID opened the door for this and there's no there's no going back. I mean, the mental health movement for pilots is here. It's not going anywhere. Pilots are reaching out to get more help. We treat 150 to 200 new pilots per month at Lift Effect, you know, when I first started, it was like one pilot a month. So yeah, I think COVID was a, was a turning point for mental health and professional aviators. Coming up, why it's important for these issues to be discussed openly, and why pilots may be particularly reluctant to do so. But first, this quick message from NBAA. NBAA Flight Plan listeners, your podcast is ready everywhere. You can download it from iTunes, ask your smart speaker to give you a listen, or hear it in any car with Apple's CarPlay. NBAA Flight Plan, available anytime, anywhere. We're back now with Mark Larson, Maddie Miller, Emma Lasko, and Matt McNeil, and our discussion about mental wellness in the aviation community. Matt, continuing where we left off before the break, did COVID reveal any new mental wellness concerns in our community, or was it more a matter of bringing existing issues to the forefront? They're the same issues that we've always had. Pilots have the same issues that everybody else, everybody else in the general population has. The, the myth of the right stuff, that's, that's a myth. That's not real. Pilots are people. They have the same problems that uh, an accountant or an attorney or a construction worker has. And in fact, because there's this stigmatized population and pilots live in the darkness of stigma uh, because of regulatory policy and all sorts of other reasons we get into, I think pilots have higher rates of mental health issues because of the healthcare avoidance factor. And so, you know, if small problems become very big problems if you don't treat them. And, you know, pilots are having to face professional reputation issues, medical issues where they can't work, can't earn money. There's a host of barriers that pilots have to contend with that negatively impact mental health and mental well-being. But it's the, the pilots have the same issues that everybody else has. I think generationally, we're seeing the younger generation, the, the new generation of pilots have, have unique challenges that are different than like my generation of Gen Xers and the, the baby boomers, which are, they're starting to retire. So we're seeing some you know, different categories of issues, but in terms of susceptibility to mental health problems, they're just the same as anybody else. I think we'll be hearing that word stigma a lot in this conversation. And Emma, you took the initiative to create a forum that tackles that head on. What led you to start the Pilot Pandemic podcast? It was a little over two years ago. I was starting to get my instrument rating. And so at this point, I had kind of 
definitely dipped at least one of my feet in the water of aviation. I was following a lot of different content creators on social media, as well as everyone's familiar with the good old meme page. And through a lot of these pages in particular, it seemed like the anonymous meme pages were talking about this subject a lot. And it always was veiled through a level of comedy. And I can appreciate comedy more than the next, but I knew that this was a serious problem because it had actually happened to myself. Not me personally, but my father and my uncle both struggled my father down the SI pathway for heart health issues and my uncle unbeknownst to me and the the rest of my family was dealing with some pretty severe depression and ended up taking his own life. My father passed in 2017. Like I said, he was having heart health issues. This was something that I feel like he lived his entire life in fear about. He knew that there was hereditary heart problems within my family. And one day he just, he was out on a run and he knew something was wrong. They went in, they fixed it immediately. He had a blockage, they put in a stint. And his doctor at the time looked at him and said, hey, like you've done a really good job living healthy up to this point. You can continue to do the same. You're gonna live a long, happy, healthy life. But I cannot guarantee that you're gonna get your medical back. And my dad, being the sole provider of a family of five, of course, was like, well, what do I do? I have to, you know, that's not an option. I can't just not have a job. So after that, my dad kind of jumped through every single hoop that every doctor was giving him to try and get his medical back. And then in 2017, he had his last stint placed in Dallas and they outright told us that the stint was too large, but they had placed it anyways and two weeks later he passed. So yeah, this had happened to me very personally. Then 11 months later, my uncle took his own life. Both my dad and my uncle were captains on wide body aircraft and very very much loved their job, had a sense of pride, like like everyone knows in aviation. It's, it's your whole life. And when this happened, again, I was just not expecting it. Again, I had seen through my dad's struggles that he was always afraid of losing his medical, that that was a big, big part of it, that it was almost like his medical license was more important than his ATP. He knew he couldn't have one without the other. But again, this happened to me. People were talking about it on social media. It didn't really seem to be taken seriously. So I just decided to do something about it. Maddie, how did you become part of this effort? So I have a little bit of a background in aviation. My husband's an airline pilot. My dad was a uh, private pilot and um, I worked as a customer service agent and ramp service agent. So that was my background in aviation. And I started to move towards aviation wellness because I had a personal training degree. I used to be a college basketball player and I have a nutrition um, certification as well. So I kind of wanted to meld aviation and wellness together. And I had at the time an app-based training program for cabin crew. And that's why I first came on Emma's podcast. So I came on as a guest and we were talking about this. Emma told her story that she just told everybody. And it really just like hit me in the heartstrings. Like I was like, I need to help you. This is something that has really just stuck with me. So she actually took a break for a little bit and 
after a few months of me advocating and seeing like that I was I was quelling up a lot of emotion from my followers on this issue, she messaged me and was like, do you want a podcast with me? And I was like, I've honestly been thinking about it. And I think that would be so great. And so that's how it all came to be. Your stories really highlight the importance of shining a light on these issues and letting pilots know that they are not alone in facing these concerns. Our minds can play tricks on our bodies, and our bodies can certainly mess with our minds. But so often, we've seen pilots avoid seeking treatment for their mental health. Why do you think that's the case, Maddie? There are a few things. Um, but I think for Emma and I, we've really pinpointed, uh, I call them pain points or like flexion points of why they won't disclose or they won't go to the doctor and say, hey, I'm having issues with this. Um, and we came up with these three points because of all of the aviators that we've talked to. It's probably been hundreds and hundreds by now. But the the reasons that we think why they are not seeking care is because they know that the special issuance process, they may have to go down it. So they're scared to get like a diagnosis. And if they, and they get that diagnosis, they're also scared of the special issuance process. So their whole thing is trying to avoid going down that process altogether because of the transparency of the process. From case to case, everybody is different. So I think that's that can be very scary. And I think they think that if they go down the process, they'll also lose their medical. That's like the first red flag for them. So I would say like the transparency slash losing their medical. And then the other two have to kind of do with going down the SI process. And I'm not saying that everyone who discloses their medical background is going to go down the special insurance process, but I think that's what they think about first. The other thing is that the SI process is very expensive to go down and that it takes a long time to receive your medical back if you do have to go down it. So those are the three pain points that we've seen every pilot touch on when we speak with them. Emma, going back to that S word again, stigma, that really comes into play when a pilot realizes something may be wrong. We may even recognize that we need treatment to get clear of these issues, but there's that stigma that can weigh so heavily on our decision-making process. I guarantee if you ask a lot of kids who were raised within an aviation family who either had a mother or a father who was an airline pilot, they'd say the same exact thing. For me in particular, that stigma was part of the way that I was raised. I grew up riding horses. I was a very serious equestrian. And with that, you know, you can take a fall or two. And my dad always emphasized, you know, you had to wear your helmet because if you do fall off, I'm not taking you to the hospital. There is no concussions in this household. We cannot have injuries in this household. That went as far as like, we weren't allowed to have big toys. Like all of our friends, I grew up in the country. They had four wheelers, dirt bikes, et cetera we weren't allowed to have them. We did have the horses though. I mean, that stigma was so strong in my family. Like we just didn't talk about mental health and even physical health. Like I said, like it was very important to stay on top of your P's and Q's because my dad wanted me and my siblings to all be pilots one day. That was his goal for all of us. And he never wanted some kind of medical issue to come in, in the way of that. Matt, when pilots reach out to you at Lift Effect, they have acknowledged to themselves that they may need help, even if they aren't sure yet what form that may take. 
When pilots first contact you, is it usually with a sense of purpose or a sense of resignation? That's a good question. I, I think it's by the time they get to us, because we're mental health professionals, but we're all professional pilots. So that that immediately gives them a little bit of ease and that knowing they're talking to somebody that is one of them and uh, we, you know, understands the process. But I think by the time they get to us, they're kind of, they're waving the white flag because they're saying, all right, I'm at the end of the line here. And often they get referred to us through the peer support programs, through some very savvy AMEs, AMAS. So by the time they get to us, they're ready to get some help. And I think this you know, loss of medical damage to professional reputation, which gets into stigma, and, and really what that comes down to is, is exactly what, what Emma and Maddie said, is pilots do not want to be seen as weak or unstable. And the stigma around mental health just in general is, you know, if you have a mental health issue, you're weak. Uh, or you're you're crazy, which is not true. That's that's all stigma. That's not how it actually works. And so, getting through those initial barriers is what is required. But by the time they get to us, they're they're really ready to get help because their issues have started to really wreak havoc, or has been wreaking havoc on their life for quite some time. You know, the average person in just the society takes them ten years to reach out for help, and it's this no different for pilots. And a lot of the the pilots we've treated. They've been dealing with this for you know decades, sometimes 20 years they've been dealing with this. And it's just, it's reached a boiling point where they're they're really left with no other choice other than if they if they don't get help, it's 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 bad. You know, we've had pilots that have suicided because they didn't want to get help. Uh, they didn't want to be, you know, seen as crazy. So they would rather take their own life than just get the help. So it's a very serious thing, but that's that's kind of how it, it it works, at least with where we are in the process. Mark, you're seeing these issues as well in your position at NBAA and your work on the NBAA Safety Committee. But in many cases, pilots are reaching out only after they've been grappling with mental wellness concerns for some time. Well, certainly we'd like to get it to a spot where, where folks are getting that help earlier. Oftentimes, though, yes, I, you know, when I get the phone call uh, that comes in, you know, they, they have been working the issue for a while and, and trying to get help. It's, it's nice to know where the resources are that can help them uh, these days. But um, whether that's the individual or whether that's, you know, the, somebody else from the company calling saying, hey, I've, I've got a pilot within my organization who I think could use some help and, you know, what what would you suggest? Um, so we've had that. I mean, it's it's definitely uh, as we talked about before with the pandemic. We knew that these are issues were in our industry. That the number of calls had really increased to the point that it was like, okay, we we really really need to be working this uh, further on the on the policy side and, and more aggressively. And and so we did that. And with this now, you know, really built out kind of the the sense of where we can help folks in this space today. So happy to have that, and really working to encourage folks to go get help early. When they have these challenges. Indeed, and this all goes back to something we've already mentioned in this episode, but let's drill down now on the special issuance medical process. Mark, what is a special issuance and what do pilots need to know about it? So most of the people whose positions uh, require them to hold an FAA medical certificate are able to, you know, go into their aviation medical examiner, have the exam, and, you know, they can walk out that day with their medical certificate in hand. There are some conditions that the FAA has um, laid out here that require additional details. Maybe that's testing or imaging results, uh, for example. And, and if you can provide those um, to the examiner that day, there's, in essence, those kind of special instructions uh, known as conditions AMEs can issue or a, a khaki uh, for short. And so 
if, if you go in and you kind of know what the examiner may need to have to satisfy the FAA overall and their ability to issue the medical certificate, you can bring that stuff with you, have that and, and provided, uh, let's say the status of whatever the condition is, is also appropriate. That can, that can be another key piece, whether that's, you know, how much time has elapsed since something happened or just, you know, the general state of the state of the condition. However, some conditions uh, or certain conditions around whatever the diagnosis may be um, require the medical examiner to defer that medical certificate ap- application to the FAA's uh, medical team for review and ultimately for their decision. So those cases are the ones that are known as special issuance medicals. And when it comes to things like mental health cases, you know, there are some limited conditions that AMEs can issue. Uh, a number of them do require uh, deferral to the FAA's uh, office in Oklahoma City for review. There is a significant backlog of cases for special issuance. FA acknowledges that. They've been doing a lot of the work to try and improve that. Uh, for example, um, you know, hiring a fourth mental health professional to review those cases. They're, they're seeing that there's been an increase um, in cases that they wanted to have that review. They're taking a look at. They've been also working to evolve even just the process of how documentation can get submitted. Some of that stuff is what adds to one of the real key issues we hear about here, which is which is timeline for how long these things can take. Some of that is just a matter of the the flow, if you will, of all the paperwork and and that and the process. You know, some of the technical limitations around that. Some of the cases, uh, the timeline is driven by the policy. So if we're talking about cases where an antidepressant is involved, you've got to be on a stable dose for six months uh, of a single one of the, the four approved antidepressant medications. If the dosage changes, if that medication isn't effective to treat whatever the condition is you're, you're dealing with, then the clock in essence resets every time that happens. With the other, the combination of requirements of, of testing and things that come into play, different evaluations FA also expects to see for that protocol. And Matt can probably give some further details here. You know, the, the best case scenario we're seeing, you know, eight to nine months for that kind of protocol, but 12 to 24 months is not unheard of in some of these cases um, due to the, the overall backlog and, and just the timelines to get everything uh, set up and situated. So it is a complex process. We're certainly working with FA to see how we can streamline that, improve it. Even frankly, what are the cases that really do require the FA's attention and, and where can we go look to, let's say, additional khakis or, or just frankly, how do we adjust what those look like to better address the issues and really have the FA focus on, on the things that really matter? Your thoughts, Matt? We deal with special issuances every day. I think that's about 15% of our pilots that we work with are on the SSRI or going through the SSRI special issuance process. It's lengthy. What we tell pilots is you don't need to be afraid of the, the process. We, we get everybody back to work. I mean, unless they have a condition that is disqualifying, which there are certain mental health ish, uh, conditions that are permanently disqualifying, but that's the very, very few. The process is where I think pilots get hung up because they don't follow the directions that the FAA requires. And it's a very specific step one, step two, step three to, to get it done. And the reason denials happen is because they didn't follow the process and they didn't adhere to what the protocol was. So that's why they're denied. But we get we get pretty much everybody back to work. The quickest we've had anybody go back from the time they started medication and if they stayed on the medication, and some of them need to stay on it, uh, and go back, actually, we just had seven, a 17-month one from start to end. 
but if they if they go on the meds and they come off the meds, they, you know they stabilize, come off the meds, the condition goes into remission, then it's it's a, a little bit quicker to go back. But the the problem that our our big gripe is the the limited medications, the absurd six month wait time, which just defies medical science, and you know the the stable dose and and the timeliness, the lack of any sort of timeliness guideline, is is the hiccup, and that's where I think pilots drop off. Uh, in the process is they look at this and they say, come on, I, I can't take two years off from work and and only, you know, have either no income because I don't have an insurance policy that covers me or my insurance policy is limited and it cuts my income, you know, in half. Uh, I can't look at two years of that to be able to, to wait to go back. So th- it is a process. I tell pilots, you don't need to be afraid of the denial. We'll get everybody back because we understand the process, but it's the timeliness guideline and, and just the restrictedness of what they allow. That's, that's the, big, the big problem where there really needs to be regulatory reform. Emma, you saw this process play out firsthand with your father. His story really drives home how intertwined our mental wellness can be with our physical well-being. I think for my father in particular, there felt like after his first stint was placed and then he started working with um, aviation specialists, it kind of seemed like the care kind of shifted from being like a focus on well-being versus just going back to work. Me and my mom both noticed and talking to his original doctor that there was so many things that they made him do that really weren't like medically significant. Like they weren't processes that otherwise, like with a regular patient, with somebody who's not a pilot, they would never make them do those tests or those procedures. So that was kind of the first red flag. But ultimately, the stress that weighed on him was really heartbreaking. My dad was one of those people where like, he kind of was a superhero to me, but I also felt like he kind of thought that himself. There was not much that could get my dad down. He lost his father when he was very young. And I think he just, his attitude towards life was like, it could always be worse. So he just, he was always very, very happy person. But when this happened, you could definitely see the mental effect that it took on him. And I remember two days before he passed, I'd only seen my dad cry three times in his life. And the third time that I saw him cry was two days before he died. And he was essentially telling me that he just, A, missed flying. That was such a huge part of his life ever since he was a little boy. And living without it was heartbreaking for him. And B, that he felt like he had lost what he used to call our safety net. My dad was big on always having a plan for us as a family and taking care of us. And he felt like for the first time in like 20 years that that plan was gone, that he had nothing to fall back on. And he started aviation really early in life. He never went to college, so he did not have a degree to fall back on. He was looking at other job opportunities and it, it there was nothing that was going to be able to compare to the level that he was at as a captain with the airlines. And it's just, I mean, there's really no other word. It was just, it was heartbreaking. Nobody should have to be faced with that decision. I'm surprised he stayed as positive as he did, but there was another side of him that was also very afraid, afraid that he wouldn't get his job back, afraid that he wouldn't get his medical back, and just afraid of the processes themselves. He didn't like going to the doctor. He did not like what they were doing with him. It made him uncomfortable. He didn't really feel like, 
the level of care was there. And for a patient, I can just imagine that was really, really scary. And then you've got your entire career is hinging off of all of this and your three kids who I was 17 at the time planning on going to college and he is out of work. I I just, I cannot imagine the stress that that puts on someone. Indeed, and anytime something might stand in the way of our livelihood and providing for our families, it will obviously affect our mental well-being and often physical as well. That said, Maddie, the special issuance process is necessary, and of course it's good that the FAA has a process to address these issues and hopefully work with pilots to maintain their medical certification. But it also seems that there are some areas for improvement we should be discussing. I think Matt and Mark both touched on the issues of the not knowing, you know, and and kind of the stigma of obviously, I think it's bigger for men, male aviators than female aviators, just because like Emma had talked about that they were the sole breadwinner for the family. And I think men typically go inward when they are having issues and they don't obviously want to appear weak. But I think once they get to the point of disclosure, the, the barriers there, like I had mentioned before, is just the unknowing um, and the, the communication with the FAA. It's just not there. I think the efficiency isn't there either with the, the time frame. I think, was it Matt who said it's about um, 17 months was the fastest that a pilot can go through the special issuance process if they do have a mental health diagnosis. And that's basically what we're seeing with the aviators that we've spoken to. It's it's actually taking longer. It's about 24 months. And not only is that hard for an airline pilot, but as a student, if that is your career trajectory and you're thinking about that, two years seems like a very long time to wait to start your career. So that can be difficult even for just student pilots. And then the cost, I think, is also huge to get your special issuance typically is upwards of $10,000. So and that doesn't your insurance doesn't pay for that. So that's all out of pocket. And with the special issuance, you have to renew it every year. And it may be a little bit less because the requirements are a little bit less after you've got your initial special issuance. But it's still a cost burden for sure. And for airline pilots, maybe not such a huge deal. For corporate pilots, maybe not such a huge deal. But we are dealing with a pilot shortage. So we need to think about student pilots going through this process. And like you said, generationally, the younger generation is more apt to seek care for their mental health. They may find themselves in that special issuance process. And so they may not be able to pay for that because they're already paying for their flight lessons and becoming a pilot is already expensive. And then throwing in that special issuance process, it becomes quite a bit of of money for them to pay. So I think those three things, if the FAA could work on those pillars, that they could definitely improve the process, not only for aviators with a mental health diagnosis going through the special issuance process, but all aviators who have to go through the SI process. In part two, we'll discuss strategies for pilots to address wellness concerns and their potential effects, as well as an important petition calling for reform of the aeromedical process. Until then, please check out NBAA's newly updated mental wellness resource, available at nbaa.org forward slash medical. You can find the Pilots Pandemic podcast on Apple Podcasts and other streaming platforms. And you can reach out to Matt and his team at lifteffect.com. 
And that's the latest from the National Business Aviation Association. Remember, you can subscribe to all Flight Plan episodes at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts, including by asking your virtual assistant or connected device. Of course, you can also download Flight Plan directly from nbaa.org. I'm Rob Finfrock. Thanks for listening, and join us next time on Flight Plan for part two of this episode. Uh, we got him inside. We're slowing back to 170.